This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Masterclass. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Michael, quant investing is not what most people think it is. How do you think most people view quant and what are the key differences to traditional approaches? Well, I think the biggest difference, well, the biggest way that people misreceive quant is that they think it's about getting an answer, about getting a number. But if you ask anybody who went to school for physics or engineering, they'll probably tell you that it's just a thought process, the the way of approaching a problem and methodically figuring out how to solve it is, I think, the biggest benefit to quant in general. And the number itself is almost not even important because things change and the relevance of the number uh, might not matter after a few moments uh, of market action. So I, I think it's really the way we go about solving a problem. And people who do it intuitively, uh, it, they can be brilliant and come up with a better answer, but there's not that much structure and comfort as there is in quant investing. And that leads to kind of those misconceptions uh, follow through uh, towards like what mistakes people make when they try to do it. Like people generally think that, especially engineers, think that they can get one tool that'll solve a problem. This is magic program, you know, just throw chat GPT at it and everything will be fine. And that's very much not the case. Setting up the problem is very delicate and much more important than actually solving it. Uh, specifically, asking the right question is a very difficult thing. And a lot of people don't even think about the question until they've gotten so far into the solution that it's very damaging to go back and redo everything to solve a different problem. And, and that's technically called a specification problem. And probably that's the most common problem I see in the hundreds of tech projects that I've overseen over the past few years. Fabulous. Well, that sets the table for a great conversation today. And I think just before we start, we're going to do some housekeeping. One is this is not investment advice, rather for educational purposes. And we're going to go down some rabbit holes and things like that. So 
you know, four guys on YouTube. I'm not sure you should get investment advice there, but we're going to have some fun times education, educating you, I hope. Today's Riffs also is brought to you by Resolve Asset Management. Please check out us at www.investresolve.com. Also, www.returnstack.com. You can view our mandates that we run across various ETFs, mutual funds, and private pools in those locations. And what you just heard was joining us today, Michael Robbins. Um, He is and has been a a well-traveled CIO who's managed pensions, endowments, family offices, worked at major banks, is a professor at Columbia University, teaching a myriad of graduate class uh, courses related to the field of investing. So we have truly a galaxy brain here today, and we're digging into his new book, Quantitative Asset Management. You can learn more about that at www.quantitativeassetmanagement.com, and we're going to get into it. Cue the music. All right, welcome back. It's time to get out the shovel and the pick. Yeah. Let's get into this. I love that URL. That's a perfect (laughs) URL for what you do. It's amazing. I'm shocked. I I was very happy to get that. I couldn't believe nobody had it before. You didn't buy it like 10 years ago in anticipation of writing this book. I can't believe it was was still available. Yeah, it was very last minute, but uh, I got lucky. This book, um, I can't believe you got you got a um, recommendation from none other than Frank Fabazzi. Uh, anyone who's gone through the CFA program will know that Frank wrote probably half the books, <laughs> certainly all the books on quantitative methods, and I think most of them on fixed income as well. Um, so and I, I think he heads up, still heads up the uh, CFA Research Institute, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. If not, he did so for decades. Um, and the Journal of Data. Baumgartner. Like that. What's that? The Journal of Data Science as well, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's omnipresent in, um, in the field of empirical finance. So that's pretty neat. And Mark Baumgartner. Um, and this is a 485, 490-page beast, right? Um, so congratulations. A heck of an achievement. Thanks. Why did you feel um, that you, know, you were so motivated to write a book of this scope Obviously, you're not, it's not the first book on quantitative asset management. What is different about your approach and, and the subject matter and how you approach this book from um, some of the canonical, other canonical books in the, in the field? Yeah, there, there's a bunch of really interesting questions in what you just said. I'll try to uh, unpack them. Uh, first of all, I really want to thank the people that gave endorsements for the book. I was overwhelmed and humbled by the quality of the endorsements I got. I don't deserve them. Uh, every one of them, they're just wonderful. Um, it, the, and, and the size of the book, it was actually uh, about three times the size before editing. And uh, that's kind of a problem with the book. Some of the criticism I get is that it's not in-depth enough. And the reason why it's not in-depth enough it, is the last answer to your question, that I and my students and other people try to solve real quant problems. They Google these problems and for various reasons, the the different examples on the internet and in books uh, are not really sufficient to solve a real problem. Uh, If you look up, say, an optimization problem, they usually talk about a few stocks or ETFs. Uh, If you want to Google the Kelly criterion, it's almost impossible to find an example for multiple assets, right? Like they just aren't real examples you can dig your teeth into. And you kind of get a hint 
of how to solve it, but it doesn't take you over the finish line. Uh, so I, I wanted to bring that to bear, um, which made the book really, really long because these are very involved answers. And then when we cut the book down, I had a choice to making it very narrow and deep or making it a little wider. And I chose to bring up a lot of examples that people should be thinking about that maybe they aren't, uh, especially people who are learning about finance or also professionals who specialize because most people on Wall Street have a specialty and they know everything there is to know about that narrow bit and they don't even realize what they don't know. And that's what happened to me. I started on Wall Street as an arbitrageur and I, I became an expert at a, a very technical trade. And then later in my career, when I became a CIO and a CRO and, and did other things, I realized there's just so much that I had no, I didn't even know to ask the questions about. So I wanted to open people's eyes, not necessarily give them everything they need to solve the problem, but at least give them all the questions they need in order to look for the answers. Uh, and that was really the motivation behind it. I didn't see really a lot out there. Either they were very academic and almost impossible to apply for a practitioner, or they were just overly simplistic and just didn't really show what needed to be shown. Yeah, I think that's that's a conversation that I, th I think we would echo those comments where we've had many discussions with portfolio managers and CIOs about the concepts in, in your book and, and others. And, and lots of people lack, lack that global understanding of the structural deficiencies that exist in portfolios, right? Have you fully exploited diversification? Are you balancing the risk premiums that you're, you're harnessing? Are you allowing the market to dictate the risk and structure of your character of the portfolio? Or are you taking some active role in making sure that, that you're balanced, diversified, and um, managed in the, in, the, in the risk side of it? So I, I think that we would echo those set of sentiments uh, loudly. And I think something else I want to get into a little later, but I'll turn it back over to Adam is, is like, how do you get the investor, the end user, the, 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 the board to buy into these factors that are so different and differentiated from everybody else? But I'll, I'll side, I'll side that for a moment and throw it back to you, Adam, because I, I think you're on a bit of a roll there. Uh oh, is he frozen? That's oh, why he was, he was, he was in a roll. Now he's fully frozen. <laughs> 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 You're back, I'm, back. I'm just not still. What do you mean? That's I was just being that still. Um, <laughs> um, actually, that's a good segue, Mike, because I was I was going to ask because I know having sort of gone through your background and having read through, especially focused on the initial kind of introduction sections of the book, it seems like you're speaking to decision makers at higher levels in the organization. Um, then are typically the ones that are maximally proficient at the actual quant, um, like technical quant tasks and thinking that are, you know, that typically go into the analysis and the development of, of investment strategies. Was that on purpose? Did you want to write a book that was accessible to non-quants and, you know, higher level uh, C-suite executives and other major decision makers at these institutions rather than just speaking to technical engineers? Yeah, I, the way I approached it, uh, and I hope it came across this way, was I was writing a book for my former self. But what should I have you know, wanted to know 20 years ago? Uh, 
And there are, are lots of excellent books on the technical aspects, and people much smarter than me are writing them. Uh, but there's a big lack of understanding outside of you know the really esoteric hedge funds and, and prop desks and big banks uh, of how to apply those techniques to finance, because finance is a really difficult data set. Uh, there's a, as I'm sure you know, there, there's a lot of things about it that violate the, the normal assumptions of a, most models. And so working with those idiosyncrasies is something that even really experienced uh, data scientists don't know because they are focused on the technicalities. Um, likewise, I think it's, it's a relatively common progression uh, to go from science to trading to portfolio management and then eventually maybe being a CIO. And it's really hard to get that education. You need to, to fill in those gaps. I was really surprised at some of the things I learned over the years. And I thought while I was doing that, I might also approach maybe a CIO who's not a technical person but manages them and maybe give him a little understanding. Maybe he won't read the whole book. Maybe read the first third. And then, you know, kind of get a background to help him manage these technical people. So I, I was just trying to fill that empty space between the high quality technical books and the plethora of trading books and trading psychology and, and all that stuff. Those already existed, but there wasn't a lot to connect them. This happens a lot, I think, in a lot of, of uh, organizations where people who rise into leadership roles are not necessarily those with the, with the deepest technical skills. And so do you have any insights on how a manager that, that is, wasn't sort of steeped in a quantitative background can be most effective at managing, managing technical people and getting the most out of their potential? What are the, what are the pros of, having, of being a manager who you know, is, didn't dedicate their life to engineering or uh, quantitative methods? Um, and then what are some of the disadvantages and how can, how can they be overcome, do you think? Yeah, uh, that's a delicate sociological thing. It, it's not something I'm especially good at, but I, I do have opinions on it. Um, it. I heard a lot of anecdotes when I started out working on Wall Street. And uh, one of them was that uh, some people actually turned down the title of managing director when they're promoted, because what happens is your job changes. It, you're supposed to be a technical expert, really good at whatever it is you were good at, up until the point that you become an MD. And then your job is selling your product to management and to clients, right? And you're no longer actually doing that stuff. You're basically supporting the people who are doing it. And a lot of technical people are not good at that. They're not good at selling. They're not good at communicating. And uh, the smart ones may realize that and say, I, I don't want the promotion. I, I can do better focusing on my strengths. Other people take a shot and find out if you know, they, they're good communicators. Uh, one of my favorite bosses once told me that uh, he felt it was his job to give me the resources I needed and to support me uh, and shelter me from all the political nonsense going on above his level, right? And um, th there's a lot to that. People, some of the viewers might not realize that uh, within a large organization like a bank, 
it's like there's competing businesses. There are takeovers. There are people taking each other's resources. Uh, if you are, say, a trading desk or a research arm, you literally have to sell your services to other departments. And they do have the option to going out of the house and buying third-party products. And it could be a whole political battle to get funding and to keep business and, and all that stuff. So um, a lot of that, those things I didn't really know about in the first half of my career. And, and as I moved into the C-suite, I realized you know, how much adversarial you know, infighting and, uh, and arguing and um, persuasion is involved. And I do make that point a bit in the book. Um, a lot of people like to skip over the first third of the book where I describe how to create a business plan, an investment policy statement, and things like that. But I think they're really great because they help you in that part of the job. They help you not only understand exactly what you're doing and, and to do it properly, but also to explain it and defend it to other people who may not really have bought into it yet. And especially when the market turns against you and people want to pull it, the money out from underneath you and you have to defend yourself and say, no, no, it's, it doesn't look like it's working, but it's really just fine. We were prepared for this. We, we tested for this. You know, we've got a plan and, you know, your uh, worries are perfectly reasonable. It's a human emotion, but we're, we have a better vantage point because we've studied this long before it happened and you're just reacting now that it's occurring, right? So I try to prepare people for that because it's, I think, a, a pretty common path to be a trader, to want to start a hedge fund or work for a hedge fund. Maybe that fund only has a few people in it, a few you know, management people, and then suddenly you're catapulted up into that sphere. And you have no preparation for that. You're used to looking at a screen with a bunch of numbers. And you know, now you have to persuade people and you have clients who get upset when they lose money. And you know, maybe they even sue you for practically no reason at all. You know, and you have to deal with legal documents and, and all sorts of crazy things. Uh, so I tried to incorporate that because books do talk about it, but I haven't seen one book that went from beginning to end, right? From designing your product and your business to building your models to managing your models and to actually running the business. I was just trying to connect all the yeah. points. I mean, yeah, I, I think I think the one thing that resonates with me on that side too is some of the things that Swenson said in his books. Now, it wasn't beginning to end, but you know, managing the board, selecting the board, managing that political nonsense away and and hiving off the investment process and hiding it from from those political machinations. So I, I do think that's a reference book, but you're right. It doesn't beginning to end. It's sort of scattered through the, the two books. Sorry, Rod, to jump in. You had something to say, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that, you know, we're quants and we, we sadly, you know, we've written a book and we've written a bunch of white papers and we get calls from very important organizations that we're like, oh my God, we're going to call for that. I mean, that's fantastic. Then we meet that technical person that read the paper have an amazing conversation and we get down to brass tacks. I'm like, okay, so what, how should we kind of think about getting an allocation in your firm? It's like, oh no, you're going to have to talk to John over there. He's a guy, he's a decision maker. Oh, okay. What's his background? Oh, he's just been in the business forever. Does he know anything about quant? No, no, but you know, I, I'll put in a good word for you. And then you're like, you, you just have a, have to have a completely different conversation with the two, the two people that same organization. One that gets it, 
loves it, gave great feedback. And the other one that you really have to talk, start talking about meat and potatoes, right? And so with the more technically oriented people that we can get in positions of power and, and decision-making positions, the better. And this is what I think your book is, um, is good at doing. And hopefully more of those quants end up reading it and asking for promotions from here. <laughs> it would be fantastic for every one of us. And your example is not even close to the worst case, right? If you're talking to, say, a pension board with bus drivers and firemen on it, or uh, a client who has maybe extensive experience in his field, say, chemistry, uh, and no experience in investing, which is even worse because then they have the position of authority and a feeling that they should understand when they don't really, and then they might be very defensive, right? It, they might actually be adversarial and you have to win them over psychologically and personal, personality-wise before you even get to why this thing should work. And they honestly don't even know whether you're telling the truth or not, because it's just all nonsense to them. Uh, I've been in adversarial meetings where either I was defending my strategy or I was trying to take over the business from another competitor, but the competitor was actually in the room. And we had to debate in front of the board about who had the more viable strategy. And the board didn't know whether you know our arguments made sense. My best guess was they were trying to read our faces and see if we could convince each other, you know. So there, these yeah, are just this is such a common, this is such a common problem in 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 all technical fields, right? Where inevitably at some point there's a layperson that needs to make a decision. Yeah, and you know it's actually you know I'm on a I'm on a couple of boards that are related to swimming, and um, one of the things we had to do is hire a new swim coach. Well, I'm not a technical person in swimming. I don't you know. I don't have the skills to hire a new, a new swim coach. So, you know, how, how should I go about making this, this, this decision? Right. But boards all the time are charged with making decisions in areas that most of the people on boards don't have any direct technical expertise in. Right. And I also agree, you know, actually, I want to pull a little bit on this thread. You mentioned the sort of the chemists and other technical people, obviously. They've, they've gone through a lot of school. They know their own domain extremely well. They perceive themselves and in their own field are highly technical, technically um, astute. Um, what is it about finance that makes it so hard for most other technical domains to connect with intuitively? Uh, before we do that, before you answer that, I just want to remind everybody on here, got to like and share. Uh, brought to you by Resolve Asset Management, investresolve.com. And you helping us uh, get a bigger audience helps us get great guests like Michael Robbins here on the show. So make sure you like and share. And by the way, participate in the conversation. I see we're getting some comments coming in. If you have questions for Michael, hit us up with them. We'll try and work them in. And um, again, we're up to a lot of neat stuff at uh, Resolve Asset Management. So like and share, check out the con uh, content on investresolve.com. And uh, back to you guys. And while we're doing shameless plugs. Yeah, there it is. Quantitativeassetmanagement.com, yeah. Michael Robbins. I've got others from the pipe. Today. And if this one doesn't do well, I won't be able to get a publishing contract to put the other one out there. <laughs> All right, there now, 
Adam, back to your question. I, I'm sorry, right. I forgot what it was. What is it? Yeah, just to remind you, what is different about finance that makes it so hard for other very well-educated technical people to connect with intuitively? I don't think it's so much different, actually. I think it's a similar problem in most technical fields that it's not interesting unless you see the benefit from it, right? So, you know, medicine is not that interesting to a lot of people until they're sick. And investing is not that interesting until you see how much money you can put in your bank account or take out, right? Um, a lot of people struggle with financial concepts until they start trading and then they get it right away, right? Because once it benefits you, you, you sharpen up. Who was it? I forget. Someone really famous said that uh, like he was uh, supposed to be executed in the morning and he mentioned how quickly it sharpens your mind. Uh, knowing that you only have 12 hours to live, right? Um, something similar to that. Uh, like floor traders, even options traders, where options is is incredibly technical, they might not have a lot of education, but they can understand this stuff inside and out, at least intuitively. And brilliant people, brilliant students at top universities struggle with it. I bet if you stuck them in an options pit for a couple of days, they figure it out really quick. And uh, the, the same is true with finance. It, it bores people to tears. But if they see how much money they can make, uh, they'll be really happy to learn it. And most of it is not that complicated, although some of it is. Uh, and a lot of it is a lot more complicated than it looks. And that's a big point I try to make in the book. Um, some things are just not that simple. Uh, as you probably know, like uh, commodities uh, ETFs, right? They're horribly complicated inside and they don't behave at all like you might think they would if you thought they'd mimic the spot price of the commodity. Um, like a VXX is something I mentioned in the book, how it doesn't track volatility over multiple day periods. In fact, it's almost guaranteed to lose money over time over pretty much any time frame greater than a day uh, just because of the way it's constructed, right? The way the the vehicle is made, the the, the contract and the way they uh, hedge it at night. Well, even um, even simple contracts with the, with carry like Bitcoin, the Bitcoin tracking futures, right? Oh, we're going to get exposure to Bitcoin. Maybe, kinda, not necessarily. Depends on time yeah. frame and what's happening, right? So yeah, it, well, and, the, and then the, and then the construct construction nuances where you do it all between four and four fifteen on the on the on the day, which did cause some uh, consternation for a couple of those uh, vol ETFs a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, and I think I guess where I was going with that was that, um, you know, if you're an engineer and you're used to working on, in, you know, civil engineering or mechanical engineering, you're used to if you're going to if you're going to turn a dial, you have a very good you have high confidence in what effect that's going to have immediately on the process that you're that you're mediating. Right. Whereas in finance, because the signal to noise ratio is so low and because there's so many dimensions of, of um, randomness that, you know, it's, I find it takes people a very long time. I think many people just never really fully internalize the impact of randomness and luck in, and, and in financial markets because it really doesn't impact them in the same way, or at least they don't pay attention to it in the same way in other dimensions of their lives. Yeah, I think... Um... Well, there's a couple of points there. Uh, one is uh, it's a big problem in a lot of things, right? Say weight loss. 
right? You you might enjoy cake at you know in dinner. If you diet over the course of several weeks, you'll lose weight. People don't have that patience to wait it through. Uh, a lot of people, I think, a lot of amateurs who invest think that luck plays too big a role, and they don't put in the work they need to do because, like you said, the the noise overshadows the signal, and they they just don't see uh, the the true benefit of putting in the effort and playing the odds. It reminds me of uh, an anecdote that Cliff Ezis wrote, uh, Cliff from uh, AQR, and uh, I'm going to butcher it, but he wrote something like he was walking down a hallway uh, in his offices uh, in Greenwich, and he passed by one of his portfolio managers, and the portfolio manager was really excited about a stock and said he wanted to overweight it and give it a really excess uh, percentage in the portfolio. And he was really excited and he wanted to know uh, what uh, Dr. Asnes thought about it. And he said, look, I'm a quant. I, I invest in hundreds, thousands of positions. I don't even know if I'm long or short it, right? Because he's trying to minimize the effect of randomness by creating a lot of bets so that his skill overwhelms it, right? And, and that's really a big part of the process. I think another thing that relates to what you mentioned is the difference between the natural sciences and investing. And uh, that's that you can create experiments in many natural sciences, or you can retry the same thing over and over again. You can't do that in finance. Every time, it's just a little different in one way or another. You can't just keep trying it and average it out. Uh, possible exception being uh, you know, the uh, science of uh, causal inference uh, machine learning, where they're trying to create the ability to do that, but they're relatively limited right now. Um, but I, I must put in the caveat, because a friend of mine will get upset if I don't, uh, medicine isn't like that either, because you can't just try things on people. Right. And right, there's the FDA, they, you know, there's limits to your experiments, um, at least in this country. Well, there's randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials, right? Those are the gold standard for medicine, they do that, you know, anytime there's a new condition. Yeah, but, but you can't. Contaminated by funding, what gets funded, no, what doesn't get funded, what, what, what new things are actually nutritional medicine. Right. Yeah. You, you, you can't force people to like starve to death for, you know, a full year. You know, there's, yes. there's a bunch of, of limits that you can't well, pull they did people do that, through. Or, What's that? They, they did, did do, do that. that and they like, and they're not doing it again. They did starve not doing a handful of people yeah. for 40 days under the, Guys of, they were very religious back in, I think it was in the early 1900s. They were very religious and they said, you know, Jesus fasted for 40 days. So you're going to fast for 40 days and we're going to do these experiments on you. Right. So I don't think that would fly today, but there are limitations in medicine. You're right. That experiments, you can't just run any experiment in a way that you could run experiments on some sort of geological fact. Also, that doesn't change. There's no re reflexivity in a geological experiment in a way that markets have, right? So that's one of the things that I'd love to, for you to tell us a little bit more about. Um, and when you're dealing with trading large amounts of money, right? As a prop trader, when you're trading a little, a little you can do a tick data trading and, and have a lot of numbers that you can lean on in order to get a signal. But when you're dealing with large amounts of money and possibly end of day trading, uh, how do you create experiments experimental designs that actually give you a signal that isn't hoodwinking. 
Yeah, I, I think actually the opposite is harder. But to answer your question directly, I don't want to. No, no, no. Let's let let's talk. Touch upon that one later. Uh, yeah, um, we do do a lot of experiments with uh, market impact, and we it's hard to get the data right, and you have to rely on things that have happened already. You can't just say, well. Let's just buy a billion dollars worth of Apple and see what happens to the market and measure it because it's too expensive to make a mistake. Uh, but you can try to infer it. You can try to create microstructure models uh, to try to figure out what the difference is between uh, the impact of large trades and small trades and how that uh, may be uh, affected better. Just spread it out over time where you, you have the risk of maybe the market drifting away from you rather than being impacted by your large trade. Uh, but I actually think, um, and also with large trades, concentration risk is a big problem, right? You might actually have to buy a significant percentage of the available supply of whatever it is you're trying to buy, which is another problem with large trades. Uh, but I, I had a good friend who I traded with for a long time and he traded fine with large trades. He traded hundreds of millions of dollars at a clip. And then when he retired and tried to trade his own money, that's when he had problems. Yeah, the whole psychology of losing his own money really affected him. And he couldn't trade small lots. I thought quants were robots. And yeah, they're human too, I guess. Maybe psychologists like just like Axe Capital. Every quant shop needs an Axe Capital type of uh, uh, psychologist on the docket. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wanted. I do want to get to like the the relationship between quant investing and data science because I think the data science side is 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 very very different and and a little bit more new and up and coming. But I don't want to. I don't want to jump on. I think you have a, a train of thought, Adam. But I don't know if that's if that's dovetailing for you or not. Well, no, I, I wanted to sort of stay on because I really want to. Yeah. I want to pull on you this know. thread of because you don't get quants who work at um, or manage you know, large institutions on very often, right? And, and our experience with dealing with many large institutions is that, you know, as we sort of discussed, the management team is not, I'll, I'll never forget, I remember sort of going to many, many conferences sort of five, six, seven, eight years ago, and there'd be these junior analysts in the crowd, and then there'd be the senior, the, the C-suite decision makers in the crowd. And you'd have an expert up discussing some you know, relatively sophisticated or technical um, portfolio-oriented um, subject matter or, you know, about, about risk premium and getting into the weeds. And the senior decision makers, you know, sitting back, clearly not watching, not caring. They don't have a clue what the guy is talking about. And the junior analysts all engrossed, asking questions, challenging the speaker, whatever, and thinking, this seems so backward, you know? And I'm just wondering whether or not, in your observation, the decision makers at these large institutions um, are getting more sophisticated. Are they embracing more quantitative or systematic decision making in their, um, you know, in, in their workflow and, and, and in their process? And, you know, how can institutions think more effectively about using quantitative methods? What are, what are the low-hanging fruit that are often missed? Yeah, I think decision science is definitely having a big effect on uh, sophisticated institutions like hedge funds and banks. They're all over it. Uh, like pension funds, depending on 
you know, which one you pick may or may not be. I imagine, you know, some of the state pension funds really don't know the first thing about it. Uh, some do. Uh, some of the more sophisticated funds like Texas Teachers or uh, Canadian funds are probably just all over the stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But that, like when, when I was a young trader, I was really distraught because I'd spend all night or all week of sleepless nights uh, coming up with an answer for my boss. And in 20 seconds, he'd just say, no, that's wrong. Fix it. Right. And because he just knew what the answer should look like in his head. He didn't need to calculate it. And I think we're still at that stage, mostly for investing, that uh, intuition and experience are still far more valuable uh, than what we can calculate. I mean, there are certainly opportunities on both sides, uh, but machines aren't ready to overtake the world just yet. They can take advantage in scale and complexity and speed. Uh, But for the big things, like when you read the news about uh, like uh, this sculptor takeover and you know the stuff about Twitter and like all the these big deals, you don't see a lot of data science in those stories. So we're still waiting for the the singularity where computers can outthink people. Uh, up until then, I think the senior people will have you know quite a bit of input. But then but, computers will be outthinking computers. I mean, someone has to be at the helm of the computer, and now we got a computer war. Well, absolutely right. Uh, it's you may remember there was an article maybe a month or two ago about a uh, they were trying to use computers to win that that table game Go, you know the uh, the board game, and the way they did it was uh, the guy that won didn't ask the computer how to win the game. He asked the computer what mistakes the other person was making, right? So it was more about warfare than winning. Right? And it, it's a good point because if you think about machine learning and um, high-frequency trading, high-frequency trading, in my understanding, isn't that sophisticated from a trading standpoint. Yeah, they're really fast. They have great communication. They're co-located. They use special hardware and all that. But they're not coming up with these really complicated multi-leg trades uh, with like implied values and latency and stuff like that. They're just doing things really fast. And I think at least for a while, computers aren't going to be quite that smart. They're just going to be able to do things fast and with a lot of data. And if you're a thoughtful person or if you have a program that has a different time frame that's a little more thoughtful than maybe the big computer is trying to think very quickly or handle exascale data, then you can find chinks in their armor and, and scrape out a little money for yourself. And where that really works is if you can have a niche, like maybe Goldman Sachs leaves a a lot of money on the table because they're interested in the really big trades. It doesn't pay for them to take all the money off the table. Not yet, not until they get better at their data science. And for a while, maybe they'll leave a few coins there, which might be more than enough for the middle market guys who only need to make a couple of million a year. So I think you're absolutely right. That warfare aspect that spy versus spy is where it's going to be at for uh, the next five, 10 years. Always invert. So Michael, just back on the topic of what institutions are, you, you said that there are certain institutions that are really accepting of quantitative methods, but quant can mean so many things. And I think it really, it really does depend on what the quant is pitching, whether it's largely acceptable in an institution or not. What do you think are the 
areas of quant that are being used right now um, in the larger organizations? Like what type of styles, yeah, what I'm type not, of strategies are the ones that are most appealing? Yeah, I'm not a, a big expert on this, but what I seem to see is that when things become really technical to the point where people really can't do them well, then these institutions are, are forced to rely on technology. So if it's something like NLP or data scraping or high-frequency trading, uh, there's no way a firm can get away from relying on uh, technocrats. But when it comes to decision-making at uh, firms with a smaller headcount, uh, meaning not like big banks, which have you know tens of thousands of people, um, people still trust their intuition and you know rely on human beings to validate decisions. And there's a good reason for that. It's, um, the example I like to use is there, there are tons of car accidents every year, right? It's, it's, if not the leading cause of death in most geographies, the second. And it's obviously a flawed uh, system where people drive cars. But it doesn't get in the news because somebody driving into a tree, as inexplicable as that is, is people understand it. But you have one robot-driven car that drives off a cliff, and it's in all the newspapers. And, and every politician's right? on it, right? Everybody's on it, right? And so that that's the problem. If you run a company that's beholden to investors or shareholders, you don't want your company to drive off a cliff. It's okay to drive into a thousand trees. You can explain that away. That happens. But you don't want to drive off a cliff. So unless you have a special relationship, if you are, say, a high-risk hedge fund who has investors that understand the risk you're taking, um, people are trying to avoid that ex existential problem of uh, making a mistake that may not be so bad, but is irrecoverable. And I, I think we're still at that point right now. So I think you're saying that quantitative methods um, have a very high, we have a very high confidence that quantitative methods are going to lead to better answers most of the time, but you need humans at the helm to supervise and make sure that nothing unusual or excessively, you know, risk-taking um, is, is going on behind the scenes. Is that where you're going? I'm just, well, th that would be nice. And I'm sure it's possible if the people at the helm are exceptionally, uh, self-disciplined, but you, I'm sure you read, uh, about a month ago, there's a paper where they did a study with pathologists and uh, they found out that, um, the pathologists and the AI program that was identifying pathologies, um, were good at different things. And so they came up with a theory that was very close to what you just said, that what if the people just worked with the machines, then they'd take the best of both and be better than each other. And in fact, the opposite happened. People trusted their intuition in exactly the circumstances where they should have trusted the machines. And they ended up with a worse result than if they had either done it themselves or let the machines do it by themselves. So these behavioral biases that we're all subject to, uh, one of the most insidious 
features of them is that you can know they exist. You could be trying to guard yourself against them and they still get you. Okay. And it's not- To know they exist does not immunize you. Yeah. Not Joel at all. Greenblatt, Joel Greenblatt has a, a, a features in you his You should share that too. story. That's a great story too, Mike. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm going to bastardize the numbers here, but Greenblatt, you know, the what's that little book of investing? So quantum Little investing. book that beats the market. Little be- book Green that beats Black. the market. Yep. Yep. Um, Great title. Here, here, here's the trades. You can, we can execute them for you discretionarily, or you can choose. Two pools of people executed discretionarily, mindlessly, Groundhog Day, every trade all the time in the right size, outperform the S&P substantially. Person chooses the trades that they want. Strategy underperforms the market, S&P, substantially. So- to, to your point, there's 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 a few studies out there that, but that, that invokes the question, and you you know you you spend time in the book, um, a lot of it on governance, which I thought was great, um, and it really sets the stage well, um, for the rest of the chapters. It's actually really it's structured really intuitively, for especially I think for non quants, um, but if we know that systematic thinking, and largely leaning on um, machines for decision making on average is considerably advantageous. From a governance standpoint, why don't we lean into that when, you know, everybody is standing back thinking about the problem more abstractly, right? You're not in the heat of battle, which is obviously when it's very hard to abandon your intuitions. It's, you know, that's really when your um, biases take hold of you and it gets, it gets very hard to stay disciplined. Um, but in, when everything's calm and we're, you know, there's a process to set your, your governance standards, why are we leaning more in that direction at that point and setting up guardrails or rules to make it difficult for those behavioral biases to manifest in negative ways? Yeah, I'm not a psychologist, but the, and before I get into the answer, thank you very much for what you said about the book. I wish I had you to talk to my publisher when I was editing it. Everybody fought me on the structure of the book. <laughs> um, but uh, my, my initial thought about what you said is um, it's about how people think, right? People latch on to the most, um, um, the, the examples that are most relevant in their head and not the, the underlying uh, plethora of real examples in the world. So that one time, the ER surgeon identified the rare disease, you know, one out of a million times. That's what sticks in his head. And he's always thinking about that when he was a hero. Every time somebody gets wheeled into the emergency room, even though 99.99% of the time, you know, it's a horse and not a zebra, right? And so the, you, your brain just can't let go of that concept that you can add value with your vast experience in education. And yeah, it's true in those rare circumstances, but it's not true most of the time. Most of the time, it is a horse. And a lot of the time, you think it's a zebra. And it's that in-between time, the lot, but not the 99.99 percentile that you're going to be wrong. And you don't want to give that up. It has to do with ego, availability bias, uh, emotions. Right when you remember that one time you were a hero, overconfidence. You feel good. Yeah, yeah. Like people, smidge of overconfidence. 
a lot of overconfidence for sure, but it's also how people perceive truth, right? The way we remember whether we're right or wrong is whether it makes us feel good or not. And so that surgeon remembers the one time he was a hero and it makes him feel great. And so he thinks about that a lot, right? And it seems truer and truer every time he thinks about it. It reinforces the pathways in his mind and that becomes the memory that appears most. And all those times he was wrong, you know, they're either painful or not memorable. He doesn't think about them that much. And the times that the rules were right, when he didn't even have to make a decision, he doesn't think about it at all. And um, I think that's a big reason why it's so difficult uh, to have that middle ground between being purely systematic and being you know, purely intuitive. It's a really hard tightrope to walk. To be fair, though, we, we should be sort of thankful for that as quants because that is the very bias that we tend to want to or hope to exploit, right? That the fact that it leaves the door open for more efficient assembly, more efficient extraction of factors on a more consistent basis with a, a larger sample size that, that you know, starts to remove luck from the equation. So we, we do... You know, as much as I would love a broader adoption, at the same time, I you know, if I get everybody adopted on this, then maybe my edge goes away because those frailties behaviorally are not left to be harvested by those of us who are, you know, using more quantitative methods. So it's kind of a double-edged. So, you know, sort it's of funny. I, I I was listening to a podcast today, and they were talking about Bridgewater, and the way they described Bridgewater was hilarious. It was Bridgewater is a quantitative investment firm that makes money to pay for 1,500 employees to sit down at a table and talk themselves out of intervening with the system that's worked, right? That's <laughs> basically all they do. I think this, I'm like, nope, no, there's 10 people on this table that are going to talk you out of fucking it up, right? I think that's an interesting thing, right? You have something that's working and then you want to find the edge case, right, Mike? And you have to have a big group of big brand individuals actually saying, yeah, actually that one time this year that we're going to change, but the other 50 ideas, we're not going to touch them. It was good chatting with you though. Right. Well, in keeping track of all those false positives where you said, I want to do something, you didn't really document it and it didn't need to be done. You've forgotten about that. That one's not even going on the tick sheet for qualification of, 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 uh, you know, looking at how act, accurate you might be um, yeah i think ir impossible has got a neat a neat comment too often the machine's reasoning isn't well represented or articulated to the human or isn't presented at all i think this is absolutely pervasive across a good quantitative strategy are you kidding me the multi-dimensionality of making a decision on an individual security or asset class in the context of the diversity of a portfolio, the balance of the portfolio, um, the, the managing of risk of the portfolio, all of those are contributing to a multi-layered, multi-faceted decision. Of course, there's not going to be any intuition to that. This is a this is a 20 by 20 matrix of influences and probability estimates that are giving you some sort of edge. Yes you're not going to have a lot of intuition. And I think this is one of the things we do, we try to do well, is try to create intuition, right? 
stock bond portfolio. Stocks are up today, bonds are down. You kind of know where your portfolio lies. A portfolio of 85 futures contracts, long and short, across <laughs> everything from, from softs to metals to, to, to gold, you're not going to have any intuition of what's going on. Yeah. So I think you're right, uh, IR impossible. There has to be this, this increase of uh, a higher level of reporting, a higher level of interaction to develop the intuition that you might have with the system that you're employing. Because at the end of the day, if you falter, you don't falter when you're up a lot. You falter when you're down a lot, thereby crystallizing the risk without receiving the return. This is the function of how we, how we quit these types of things. And then layer on that, the political discussions, which are, I'm trying to get that Michael Robbins and I want to get his strategy over to mine. Is he in drawdown yet? Because yeah. I'm going to put that pain right on the board. I mean, this is, this is, you know, as Machiavellian as it gets. So yeah, let's get Michael's position out. Oh, we're Hassanis and, and his uh, private equity guys. Remember the story of him? The, the, the private equity guys are, look, no vol. And he's like, you're not, you don't have a price. And he's over loving it because he's doing well on the quant side where they're striking a nav, but they're after his money. They're like, give me the allocation. What are you doing over here? I mean, what a. Yeah. Don't forget the hunts. Preach, preach, Mike. I mean, creating a sense of intuition, quant, is is super important. But I do wonder sometimes if it, you're it, just creating a good story for us to feel good about, or for the investor to feel good about. Uh, well, of that's course a, we are. And that's you need all to raise money. <laughs> but uh, you brought up some points I'd like to comment on if I can, quickly, because they were really good. Please, please. Um, the, the story you were, you were referencing, uh, Matt Levine from uh, Bloomberg Opinion, talks about something like that, very much like that a lot. He's one of my favorite authors. And he has a slightly different uh, uh, interpretation of it. He says that the, the people at Bridgewater have this great machine making all this money and their culture is to argue with each other so much that they don't interfere with the machine, right? That the, their biggest benefit of their culture is it keeps them away from keeps you know, the dials. Right? Hey, put, put one mark for resolve yeah. on that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Another story that I thought of while you were talking uh, was a great paper I wrote, which is a play on words from uh, from Kahneman's book, uh, uh, Trading Fast Than Slow is the name of the paper. And they did this study of, I think, money professional money managers, uh, a lot of them. And they determined pretty conclusively that they think a lot about what trades they want to get into when they create their sales pitch. But when they have a new thing that they want to buy, they don't think really much at all about what they sell to raise the money to buy the new thing. And they effectively leave about 2% on the table by doing that. And I've, I've worked at a lot of big money management firms and I've asked a lot of people and everyone that I asked agreed that, yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, when we're trying to sell something to a client, we just want to raise some money to, to finance the deal. And, you know, maybe we buy something that's up a lot to take profits or we buy something that's down to, you know, stop losses. But we didn't, we don't do a lot of analysis to try to decide, is this the opportune, perfect time to sell? And maybe we should wait on buying that new thing because it's not the best time to sell the old thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I so believe that the academic term for that is a shiny new object. <laughs> shiny yeah. new things. Yeah. yeah. Well documented. But it's true. I mean. You want it so badly that you forget that it's just as valuable 
to be thoughtful about the exit of old strategies that you think don't work as it is to invest or start investing in the new strategies for sure. It's, it, it's an and end to end problem that needs to be solved. Yeah. But serious people do do performance attribution on themselves and they have alpha, alpha capture programs and things, but most investors don't. And I've never seen an RIA that was really good at it. Uh, when you ask investment advisors, a lot of them really aren't that critical about their own performance. Uh, and they really benefit to be, right? To figure out what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong and improve the things they're doing wrong or stop doing them. Right. You yeah. just don't I think there's 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 an objective function there too that's a little different. Right. And and it's sort of related to career risk, right? It's sort of similar to the asset manager who you say, well, here's a better mousetrap. It's quantitative. Well, is anybody else doing it? How far away from the benchmark is it going to get me? So so the asset manager has the problem. The RIA has the problem of being fired, you know, suggesting to diversify and to manage futures 10 years ago as an example. And, and sitting with that drag on the portfolio for a decade while preaching diversification gets you less clients, yeah. keeps you less clients. Although so a, lot this of, is, uh, a lot of advisors do do that. But uh, what I was talking about was actually studying and uh, attributing the different parts of their performance, right? So a lot of them keep track of their performance. They have to. They have to tell their clients how much money they're making. They may play games with... Uh, benchmarks and things like that, uh, depending on how, uh, you know, how much they want to play games with their clients. But to do like an in-depth attribution to really be serious about, hey, am I good at being long or short? Am I good at picking energy stocks or utility stocks? Right? Um, am I good at, you know, when momentum regimes are in play or mean reverting regimes, right? Just really picking it apart. Then it's a really technical thing. That's something that, uh, you know, most investors don't get into. Right. And this is... Mike, you were, when we, when we got going... Oh, sorry. No, 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 that's fine. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, Mike was, um, he sort of led with question about communicating quant concepts and, and um, the, the merits of quantitative approaches and quantitative strategies to, to lay people or to investment professionals who are not don't have a background in quantitative methods. Any insights on best practices there? I'm, you know, I'm not terrible at it, but I'm not uh, that good at teaching it because I don't really understand it that well. I, I will say that uh, my faith in people to understand complex problems really took a hit during COVID. And uh, people seemed all... I, well, they, they really didn't seem to be able to grasp some concepts. Uh, and it, it seems really hard to communicate something to somebody that they don't want to hear. And it, if they're not receptive, trying to explain something as complicated as like an LLM uh, is probably impossible. It, it might be nearly impossible under the best of circumstances. But oftentimes when you're trying to communicate to someone, they don't want to hear what you're saying anyway. And it really comes down to trust, uh, which is why I talk a lot about in the book about building business plans and experiments so you can show people results. And the best they can say is, I think you're lying to me. All right, well, if you think you're li I'm lying to you, there's nothing I can say to change that. But 
assuming I'm not lying to you, I have all this proof, <clears throat> right? And I can show you all this proof. And if I think you're lying, you don't even have that, right? So we're really at a standstill, at least. So what, is, what show- does proof look like to somebody who's not quantitatively oriented though? Right, so that's a big problem, right? Because that's the whole thing behind back tests and the, and the criticism of back tests. Lots of people abuse them, and so they get a really bad name. But they're actually a great tool if you use them right and if you're honest. And it, it's like anything else. If you're going to abuse it, nobody's going to believe you, no matter how good the tool is. But if you use it correctly, you can provide a lot of good results. And I've been in... a heated discussions about back tests, and you can defend them to someone with an open mind. They say, you know, I don't believe your back test. You say, oh, why? Well, you know, a lot of back tests, you know, overfit. Yeah, but look at these ways that I, I tried to prevent overfitting. I did, you know, this cross-validation. I tested out a sample. I, you know, I did all these things. I tested these hypothetical situations using synthetic data, um, you know, and then you get into how you made the data. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, but, but you know, a lot of times the, the transaction costs are not, you know, really realistic. Look at how I did those, right? And you can get into the weeds and you can refute their concerns. You may not change hearts and minds, but you can certainly make a good argument where they don't really have a lot to push back on. It really comes down to emotions. And that's kind of the best I think you can do if somebody doesn't want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, it's a good question to ask. Is there anything I could say that would change your mind? And if someone says, nope, there's nothing you could say, you're like, okay, well, that's, you're closed for business. That's fine. Yeah. So, so, yeah. And there's I've nothing I could Let me just say. take this, this uh, time to, to <laughs> kind of give a plug to um, uh, our chief investment officer and head quant, Andrew Butler. We did a podcast with him a year ago that actually delved deep into all these things, process, how to think about back testing how to make sure you're not fooling yourself and you're the easiest one to fool. And, you know, there's a whole, Mm -hmm. it's super important as we head into this world of machine learning and LM, it's becoming really, really popular that allocators understand the difference between a full in-sample back test and an out-of-sample back, like simple things like that. Just those, ask that and then learn so that you know at the very least how to weed out the quants that don't even know they're fooling themselves. And there are a lot right? There are a lot <laughs> yes. of them, especially putting out ETFs and mutual funds that don't understand a proper experimental design using the proper scientific method to make sure that, that you're doing it right. And if you want to listen Absolutely. to that podcast, you can go to investorsall.com forward slash podcast and just type in Andrew Butler. Uh, and I think the podcast is called uh, uh, Resolve Zone Andrew Butler, Integrating Prediction with Optimization. Um, so do check that out. Also, if you guys are still sticking around, please do like, and subscribe. Um, Mike's a great guest. Uh, you know, I think we're, we've learned a lot from reading his book, quantitative asset management. I think you guys, uh, will too. So please take a, go to his website and, uh, download it, read it. Um, I'm sure you'll do one. Do you have an audio book? Cause I'm sure that will. <laughs> I'm making videos and I'm posting them on the video, website. video on yeah. the website. So go check that out. Um, but let's talk a little bit about. Well, what's that tool that reads books for you? Like P- reads PDFs. So uh, I forget Speechify. Now. We were talking about Speechify. this week. Speechify. Not only that, Speechify right. now. Oh God, that's giving a plug. Uh, not getting paid for this one. Um, Speechify now summarizes. Like you can actually 
you send it in, it reads it to you, and, and then it also summarizes and reads you a summary in case you want to, you know, not waste an hour listening to a long form white paper. So they're they're getting they're up in their game. It's waste. Strong. Um, but yeah, let's let's can we dig a little bit on proper backtesting? And how do you think about that problem? Yeah, there, there's a lot of nuances to it. And unless you have a really fancy computer, which a lot of people do, but most amateurs and even professional traders don't, you got to pick and choose what's important to your backtest, which makes it a lot more of an art than a science. Uh, you could try to include realistic uh, fees and costs, taxes if they apply, market impact, you know, all sorts of things like that. But then it the backtester gets so bogged down that it becomes ineffective. And then there are you know, lots of other interesting things that you can add in, uh, like um, uh, Marco Lopez de Prada uh, talks about uh, penalizing your backtests for the number of backtests you do, right? Because the more you do, the more likely you are to stumble on something that works by chance and not in reality, right? And th there are just so many interesting ways to enhance your back tests. And uh, you mentioned it earlier in this podcast, there's so many decisions you have to make when you make a quantitative model. People think of it as a science, but really every little thing you do involves a decision that means everything. You have to just try a few things. The, the space is too large and multidimensional. And being able to do that is really tricky as well. So. Uh, yeah, it's really kind of an art. But what I try to get into in the book and what you describe as well in your podcast is all the little things that you can do to improve your backtest to make it better, right? And um, importantly, your backtests can overcome some of the oversimplification, oversimplifications you make in the other parts of your design process, in uh, your factor research, in your optimization Right, all these other methods are much more computationally intense. They they take a lot more time and have to be simplified a lot more than the backtest does. So you can use the backtest kind of as a sanity check and say, did my other model do a good job? And that's a useful thing too, because you might, for instance, use um, the triple barrier method as an objective, right, where you have a uh, a time terminal where you say, if I'm in a trade for a certain amount of time, I'll exit it. But you might also have an upper barrier and a lower barrier for a take profit and a take loss. And that might be a very oversimplified example of what your investment process is like. So you may have that in part of your research, but then in your back test, you may put in something much more complex to better test your theory, right? And that all depends on how you work, right? Maybe you don't do trades unless you have a board meeting. Maybe you don't have a board meeting on holidays, or you can call an emergency board meeting if volatility spikes or what have you. The more that you can build into your backtest, the more ammunition you have <laughs> to keep money in your strategy when things start going south and people want to pull the plug, right? So it, there's a lot of nuance there. Right? There's a lot of really fun things you can do. And what's great about it, which uh, goes to some things that we were talking about earlier today, is it's different for every institution and for every strategy, right? Every institution has a different fee structure. They may have 
different tax structures. They may have uh, dark pools where they can cross trades and pay almost no fees, or maybe they have to pay full commissions, right? Uh, all sorts of different things that affect your back test. So that means they have to hire a quant to do a new back test. They can't just buy one off the shelf. Right? And that's great for us. It just builds a lot of opportunity, a lot of friction to take advantage of, and a lot of nuance and dials to turn to make money for that particular institution. Right? Because you don't have to necessarily beat the market if you could just beat the existing strategy and improve from what they have then. Love that. And I, I, I think, think just to clarify... Really good. Sorry, yeah, I, I'm just going to make a statement and then you can... Yeah. But I think backtesting is a really good example of where... You were saying earlier that experience plays a really large role, right? Like um, your head explodes with a number of dimensions of uh, the kinds of decisions that that you can make. And you get into these discussions with people who just don't have that level of experience with the data or the methods. And it's, it's really hard to connect the dots. You, there's... There's not very good language for the intuitions that you gain from, from that kind of experience about how, you know, yeah, you use these two assets and you, with, with this process and it looks like it was really good, but there are special properties about these assets that actually made it, made it look really good. But if you, and it was, it was unique to this period and it's not going to repeat, but you're, you're sort of deceiving yourself. Well, well you know, so, just to give, give a concrete example. It's impossible there, to have like exactly what you're talking about. Well, yeah. So, so, um, well, Sounds like, you know, as an example, <laughs> as an example, um, there was an article about replicating trend, uh, the, the, the CTA trend index with, with four assets, right? So ES, S and P treasury bonds, CL. So, uh, oil and I think the Euro and, um, the author demonstrated that this, that, you know, beat the CTA index over the middle of 2008 through the middle of 2023. Now, the CTA index goes all the way back to 2000, right? So immediately you sort of scratch your head, like, why, why'd you only go back to, to 2008? <laughs> and it turns out, so of flag. course, sure. But of course, also, we know what was the best performing asset, not by a little, but by like a massive amount over the, you know, mid to late 2008 period through mid 2023. Like, the S&P outperformed everything by like three, four, five X, right? And so having an extremely high, an asset with an extremely high mean as one of your assets to select, is going to vastly skew your performance higher, and right? You into and as your only, as your only equity. As your only equity index. in this, exactly. The only one. You just picked the best one. You didn't pick the Italian bolsa. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you didn't you didn't you didn't pick a number of them where there's the back and forth and the switching out because there's there's a number of them that that may be coming into the lead. No, you just picked so the best what the one that's and you call it But it day. seems super intuitive. Like yeah. ES and TY or you know, at CL, these are like the yeah. biggest markets. So yeah, I mean, of course it makes sense. So you don't really it's not it's not easy to see the that's bias right. that's that you've it. embedded. You think you're actually being neutral. Well, about my it. favorite one. And so it, this is it's just, my, my favorite one was when we wrote the adaptive asset allocation paper back in 2012. And of course, you know, this was a long, flat yeah. kind of momentum driven. You had, you know, uh, global equities, 
domestic equities, bonds, commodities, gold, something like that. Just, just a random set of diversified assets, right? And uh, it kind of went viral and a lot of people tried to improve on it. And I remember one group came and said, well, look how well I've done. Look how much I've improved on your models. And they had, it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> they had done an amazing job at picking the NASDAQ at the equity <laughs> position. They took out all the non-performing equity mandates, mandates. And then what's, what's more annoying is that five years later, they claim that out of sample, their approach to adaptive asset allocation continued to outperform, proving out of sample, walk forward, that it is still a better system without seeing the bias right then in front of them, right? And this is how, this is just a super obvious example to a lot of us, but it's not that, and there's so much that's not even super obvious to us that we are still learning as we go through it. Yeah. So it is, it is a yeah. tough and nuanced process. Yeah, it's, I just wanted to come back to Michael, what you said earlier about a better back test. A better back test does not mean a higher sharp ratio. It does no. not mean a higher return. It means a back test that is more reflective of what happens out of sample. The character is more in alignment with what happens out of sample, not better in a sharp ratio or better in a, in a mean return. It better, most bestly reflects. Oh, most that's well a good one. Mike, I'm <laughs> writing that one down. Woo! I got to go back to English class. Okay. <laughs> better, better reflects the out of yeah. character, out of sample character. Anyway, over to you. An, an example that I, I uh, was thinking about when you were talking is a little more subtle, but really in the front of my mind and has been for a very long time. Uh, a lot of people write about it, but Aaron Brown wrote a whole book about wrong way risk, right? And right way risk. And I remember when uh, the Russians defaulted on their bonds, it was like 1998, I think. And I was in a basis trade and the trade was amazing. Right? It was a layup. It was, I mean, it wasn't a layup till you put it on, but it was an arbitrage and, and we were guaranteed to make money. But the company was bleeding from their equity department and they needed cash for financing. And so we had to get out of our trade to generate cash for them to finance their overnight positions, right? Because treasuries and, fu and futures, you know, settle on different days. And so you need to finance overnight and they couldn't give us the cash overnight, right? It was just a gap risk. And the same thing's true, say, if you have shorts, you could backtest a position with shorts in it but then when you actually run the position, the bank pulls them from you, right? And so your short, short position- secure, Short equities. Yeah, yeah, short equities, right. And, and so exactly when your strategy is supposed to make the most money is when you can't execute it, right? And that's something, if you never experienced it before, you wouldn't know to put in the back test. Just, oh, I have great, this great short book, it's amazing. Right. Or, or, you know, I make money when everybody else is losing money. That's a great thing. It's not a great thing if you need those other people to finance your trade. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there are a lot of subtleties that an experienced person will build into a back test. The known it, unknowns, right? These are like the known things they're, that they're, they're known if you've gone through them. <laughs> well, remember, remember the guys in Waterloo? where they had solved the market. And we're like, well, how did you do position sizing? And how did you calculate the margin for all the positions? These are PhDs in bioinformatics, right? Yes. Yeah, like, 
sophisticated technical people who had never operated in markets before, but claimed to have solved the market. Sorry, Mike, anyway, just. Yeah, no, and, and really we're like, well, how are you calculating positions? Oh, we just, the inverse of the current, you know, margin rates or something like that. And I'm like, the, just the current ones, not not the ones from 20 years ago. You know, not they the changed, ones right? where <laughs> they tripled it overnight, not the one yeah. where they were gold and silver. They, you know, it was going through a parabolic spike. VIX, you had to pay one, one, like you, you, you didn't have access. You, you could not put those trades on in the magnitude that you're suggesting. You didn't have enough capital. Did mm-hmm. you account for any of that? Yeah, What's they that? solved their portfolio into an eighty percent drawdown in two months. So, That's typically, um, what happened? Yeah, I mean, these are the things—the smartest people, the most technical people, people straight out of Google and machine learning—never touched the markets, not understanding the, the the subtleties of of a proper experimental design that takes into account all the all the experience that one has in trading markets themselves, right? So an example I bring up in class all the time is even from the very beginning, you say, well, what do you want to do? I want to make a strategy that beats the market. Well, how do you define beating the market? 30 day rolling returns? Uh, do you have a triple barrier? Right? Like that's a subtle question, even without getting into what you invest in or how or what the timing is or the rebalancing or what your finance. Yeah. I mean, there's. Right. A million oh things. Oh my God, I didn't even think of you that. Know, well, I, you have students who think they've, they're going to be so filthy rich to solve the market with sharp ratios of four. Like, could you, I, I can't even imagine how many back tests you get that are just like, they get them so excited. They probably feel like they've done, they've done something nobody else has done only to be faced with reality, yeah. right? Or maybe, maybe the worst, we've worst all thing fall, is that we've they turn it on and they have an immediate... We've all, fallen we've, we've all fallen for that on the journey. You yeah. get that beaten yeah. out of you. Well, I mean, and, and the other thing is, one that which wins market... Six months, then it's like... Yeah. Then you're, you're like, <laughs> which market do you want to be? Now you're really dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, so the market that you select to be the one that you beat, well, how did you make that decision? How did you make the decision that it was this market or that market? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know we penned a piece a while back on you know, emerging market managers and U.S. equity managers and just looking at the dispersion and you could have been top percentile emerging market manager. You couldn't even scratch the balls of the worst U.S. equity manager. Like, and who made that selection? Like you couldn't even reach a scrotum. So, uh, I mean, just by, you know, oh, I picked this market. Bias, 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 bias. Anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what I try to get across in the book. And it's it's a positive and a negative. I try to open people's eyes to all these things that they might not have thought about. And even if you're a professional who is very good at a specific market, maybe you haven't thought about AT1s or you know some other esoteric investment or whatever. I, I just try to bring up as many things as possible, give people food for thought to kind of burst that ego a little bit so they can actually make money and not lose it as soon as they go live. Because you've all seen those charts of in and out of sample, you know, live trading where they do great and then they start going live and it completely goes sideways. What is the flat line, right? They just think of it. to do the in and out of sample as your back test. (laughs) Yeah, they did a new back test, yeah. It's like, I fixed the problem. Let's try it again. Nope, same thing. Now I've got it. This is the third time's a charm. So, so, I mean, the average edge on of any system that actually has an edge is very small right it's almost a coin toss um so 
I mean, how do you how do you educate your your students into actually creating robust quantitative models, understanding that limitation? Well, there are different kinds, and and uh, uh, a counterfactual to what you just mentioned is, for instance, arbitrage. Right. So there could be arbitrages that the big banks, at, at least for now, it's not worth their effort to get into. It's the the value versus the time and talent it takes to extract the money uh, is low. But for somebody maybe a mid-sized bank who's pretty smart and knows how to do it. Uh, can extract money with a near perfect record. It just takes a lot of energy and isn't worth it to most of his competition. Uh, that happened to me when I was trading the treasury bond basis in the 90s, right? The, the big guys were going after the big trades. They weren't looking to make a million dollars. They wouldn't get out of bed for a million dollars. But that was fine for me. I'll take a million dollars profit, you know, and I'll work all day for that. I don't care. Right. And then the smaller guys, the amateurs, they just didn't know how to calculate it, uh, at least, uh, you know, until um, the, the, the canonical book about it was written. And then he, he exposed all our secrets. But uh, it, there are different uh, methods that are more reliable than others. Uh, uh, but I, I think getting rid of that ego is is definitely the biggest part for any trader, you know, quantitative or not. Uh, you know, as you were mentioning, you, you get lucky at the beginning and that gives you all sorts of bad biases and behaviors and, uh, being lucky from the start may be the worst thing that happens to you over the long term. Completely agree. Yeah. 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 I think Mr. Butler experienced that in 99, the king <laughs> of the trading floor. Yeah. Well, if you want to hear his story, right. go, you carrying me around with my, uh, inflatable Burger King. <laughs> yeah, there's a, if you go to our podcast and look up, oh, I think, I think boy. Corey had a great, uh, Corey Hostian and, uh, in flirting with models podcast, the first interview there with you, you go into detail on that one. That's if anybody wants to hear the backstory, that's a great one there. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, oh, I have lots of backstories about keeping me humble. That's, uh, those are not hard to find. <laughs> hey, I started, I started, well, the, I, I've got a few of those stories too. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Both about both about Adam and myself. So yes. <laughs> well, guys, we're at about an hour yeah. and twenty minutes too. And oh, wow. I think we should that start wrapping up. It, it, we have a lot of fun, Michael. But I want to know, like, so so you've got this body of work. We've covered a lot of topics. We got. Let's take a few minutes and just what have we what have we missed? What are the things that you've been asked, or what are the things that have really kind of uh, created gravity around what you've published that we may not have touched on, and maybe will rely on your expertise to round it out a bit. What, what have we missed in, in this discussion with you? And what would you like to highlight on top of what we've talked about today? I think you were really great about touching on a lot of important topics. So more to not expose things that you missed, but to reemphasize some of the things you said, that the, the world is a lot bigger than most people give it credit for. And we do have uh, a, a systematic bias towards thinking we know more than we know. And what I tried to do in the book was to try to open people's eyes to all those things. And the biggest criticisms I get about the book is it doesn't say enough about what I wanted to learn. Well, that's exactly what I was trying not to do, was to teach you the things that you don't want to learn, because there's so much out there that is expensive to learn by experience. And people just have to learn it. Every generation, they have to relearn 
what the previous generations learned and it cost them. And uh, you see it happening in crypto, right? They're just reinventing traditional finance the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of that, you know, the huddle uh, environment is the overconfidence of a trade that worked really, really well. And they're writing it all the way down or have a lot of them have some of them got out. Um, yeah. I mean, this is um, this is a book that I think everybody that cares to to learn what's coming up next in the next generation of investing needs to read, whether you're planning on doing it yourself or actually overseeing or possibly allocating to quant, you need to at least have a, a cursory understanding of how to think about the problem. So I highly recommend everybody um, read Michael's book. Now, Michael, in the last five minutes, I do want to list out every alpha generating strategy and arbitrage okay. opportunity that's on your desk right now in extreme detail. Go. You've seen that paper. It's like, what, 105 uh, trading strategies or something on SSRN, where they give an equation for each one. I have not seen that's that. That's a funny. I'm sure it's, uh, I'm sure yeah, it's a gold mine. Right up there. Yeah, that, that's almost as good as uh, the one about uh, um, the, the factor zoo yeah. Yeah, that had like 30,000 factors in it. Yeah. I'm I'm also reminded of that quote from The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, where the guy says, we take a handful of sand uh, from an endless landscape of awareness around us that and pull world. that handful of sand, the oh, world. That's a great. Right? You, 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 you think you know the world, you're holding it in your hand, but you're standing on a beach. And I think that's, that is kind of what, you know, in a nutshell, what you're saying. And I, I love that quote because I, I feel that all the time. I think I know something. I think as we age, I get, I, I'm maybe skewing the other way. We're like, I don't know anything. I've, I've lost all, you know, I, yeah, sure. Everything could be true. Everything could be false. So something you have to kind of wrestle with as you go through. But I, I really love that quote because we, we think we have it all in our hand and we're staying on the beach. Anyway. Well, let's anchor back to some reality. Can we just go back? Yes, there is some reality. You need some bonds for bull markets, some, some, some equities for bull markets, some bonds for non-inflationary bear markets, and some, some alternatives for everything else. And just be thoughtful about your allocations. And, and that's it for now. That's a good high-level anchor. There is some, some reality and some things that we can count on. Then if you want to get sure. into the nitty gritty of all the, uh, the arbitrage opportunities, then you can get lost in, in the handful of sand, I guess. It's yeah. a rabbit hole. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Quantitativeassetmanagement.com. Michael Robbins, <laughs> guru. Uh, thank you for coming uh, today, spending this time with us. Really appreciate it. Love the conversation. And uh, Make sure everybody like and subscribe and share this with uh, others so that um, we can continue to get great guests on. Right. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Right, Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.
This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass.